This presentation is from Design Research 2021, Day 2. Now, our, our next talk this morning uh, comes from Jax. Jax is a uh, principal designer um, and will be sharing with us uh, thoughts, structure, a model on engaging with people who have lived experience with mental ill health uh, and how to go about conducting design research with that audience. Jax, hello. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. Over to you. Okay. Thanks, Dean. Um, before I begin, I'd first like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And I would also like to acknowledge and pay respects to the elders, past, present and emerging on the land where you are located today. I extend my respect to any Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and any other First Nations people with us today. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Well, have, hello everyone. My name's Jack Swexler. I'm quite excited to be here. Um, I've enjoyed all the talks so far, so thanks to all the presenters. Um, I'm a practitioner, a methodologist and a change maker, and I've been working with design and change practices for more than 15 years. I run two communities of practice, Social Design Sydney and the Systems Change Salon, both aimed at supporting people to do social design and social change work. I also consult independently a sticky design studio. I encourage you to have a look at our Social Design Sydney YouTube channel. We have like over 50 videos about practitioners talking about design for social change. So as I said, I'm excited to be with you today. Trauma is a really important topic and a really interesting topic that um, I've become quite enamored with recently. A lot of my design and research practice has had me working with vulnerable populations, with people who, people who have lived experience of mental health and trauma. In past years and on numerous occasions, I have felt ill-equipped to be doing this work ranging from managing my own well-being to ensuring that the people who I am working with feel safe. I don't feel that we as designers and researchers know enough about trauma and I feel it's important that we are more trauma-informed in our work. Without understanding trauma and despite our very best intentions, it can be easy for us to cause harm. The sweet spot of my practice lies in the intersection of teaching or sharing, learning and doing. I took a bit of time off consulting last year um, and I spent some time feeding my learning addiction. I completed an online certificate in trauma-informed care. This is a course aimed at service providers. I did it holding the question in mind, how might I be more trauma-informed in my practice? In this talk today, I will share some of my learnings and reflections with you. I will begin with a discussion about trauma. We'll look at what it is, how common it is, and what are some of the different types. I will explain some key concepts relating to trauma that I feel are particularly re relevant to us as design practitioners and share the five principles of trauma-informed care. Next, I will touch on how human-centered design research can cause harm. I will close with some pragmatic prompts and some stories about how to conduct trauma-informed design research. We will look at how we can shape our practice so we can uphold the five principles of trauma-informed care. And then I will finally share some resources that I have found particularly interesting. I will share quite a lot of resources throughout this talk and I've put together a page on my website um, with all of the links, so I'll share that at the end. First, a disclaimer. 
I'm focused on the practice of design research, not on um, human-centred design more broadly. Um, if, if how human-centred design can cause harm is a topic of interest to you, I find it particularly interesting, I would highly recommend that you tune in with the Design Justice Network. And there is this fantastic book by Sasha Costanza-Chalk, um, which I highly recommend. It's, it's available for free as a PDF download. I also ran a meetup about this um, very important topic recently, and I created a little video just summarising what design justice is about, and you can access that on the link there. As I said, I will share it at the end. All right, let's kick off with defining trauma. So a widely cited definition of trauma from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration says that trauma is an event or a series of events or a set of circumstances that is experienced by an individually as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional or spiritual well-being. While everyone has experienced trauma, not everyone has been traumatised. There are many different types of trauma, such as acute trauma, chronic trauma, complex trauma, relational trauma, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, intergenerational trauma, collective trauma. That one's particularly interesting because it's a um, psychological effect shared by a group of people of any size. So we could say that COVID is resulting in collective trauma for people at this time. Racialized trauma, vicarious trauma and traumatic stress. So this image shows how different types of trauma relate. Some example episodes that can lead to trauma include a life-threatening illness, family violence, accidents, crime, burglary, assault, sudden loss of a loved one, interpersonal violence, large-scale disasters, amongst many other things. While there are no objective criteria to evaluate which events will cause post-trauma post symptoms, circumstances typically involve feelings of a loss of control, of pain, of um, confusion, of helplessness, of betrayal, of loss. Many of us are doing work in the mental health space and there is a clear relationship between mental health and trauma. Trauma often leads to mental health challenges. A core tenant of trauma-informed care is that a person's trauma is acknowledged during care provision. Trauma is embodied. It happens in the body. Resmaa Menachem, who has written a really great book, which I'll talk a little bit about later, says, trauma is not a flaw or a weakness. It is a highly effective tool of safety and survival. Trauma can cause us to react to present events in ways that seem wildly inappropriate, overly charged or otherwise out of proportion. Whenever someone freaks out suddenly or reacts to a small problem as if it were a catastrophe, it's often a trauma response. And now another quote from Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score, a seminal text on trauma. He says, traumatised people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs and in an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and in numbing awareness of what is played out inside. They learn to hide from their selves. Trauma healing is relational. Another quote by Bessel van der Kolk. 
Our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another. Restoring relationships and community is central to restoring well-being. Healing happens in relationships and in the meaningful sharing of power and decision-making. Design research work is relational too. Trauma is intergenerational. There is mounting evidence that the offspring of trauma survivors of genocide, war, slavery, famine, and other traumatic events have a greater risk of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, alcoholism, metabolic disorders, and even premature death. Whether that occurs through epigenetic inheritance and or through adaptational styles that survivors adopt to cope with their traumatic experiences, which then in turn affect the health and well-being of their children and grandchildren, is not clear. But we do know that trauma is passed down between generations. When trauma is ignored and there is no support for dealing with its effects, trauma can be passed from one generation to the next. This is why trauma-informed care is so important. Resmond Menachem, he wrote a very interesting book called My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. In this book, he explores the relationship between racism and trauma. Resma says, trauma is encoded in our DNA through families where one family member mistreats another, through unsafe or abusive systems, structures, institutions and cultural norms. 65% of Australians are expected to experience trauma at some stage of their lives. Let's now talk about Indigenous Australians. Indigenous people in Australia and globally commonly suffer from first-hand and intergenerational trauma, experiencing high rates of poor physical health, mental health problems, addiction, incarceration, domestic violence, self-harm and suicide directly linked to experiences of trauma. Since colonisation in Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have suffered separation from land, from family, and cultural identity. This has resulted in multiple experiences of trauma, grief, and loss, affecting people at the level of the individual, the family, and the community. Trauma and loss of this magnitude continue to have intergenerational effects. Western colonization is ongoing. Trauma is sustained and perpetuated as macro and micro aggressions continue. Intergenerational trauma and new instances of trauma together can lead to a vicious cycle of within Indigenous communities. Trauma-informed practice are critical when working with Indigenous communities. Trauma-informed services are aware of and sensitive to the dynamics of trauma, as distinct from treating the trauma. At its core, a trauma-informed approach means thinking about how trauma affects people. Trauma-informed practice, it's a strength-based framework that supports responsiveness to the impact of trauma, enabling physical, psychological and emotional safety for both providers and survivors. There are five principles for trauma-informed care. These are safety, ensuring physical and emotional safety. Choice, individuals have choice and control. Empowerment. Prioritising enablement and skill building. Trustworthiness, task clarity, consistency, interpersonal boundaries. Collaboration, 
sharing decision-making and power. I will expand on these principles um, further on in the talk and discuss them in relation to practice. Human-centred design research can cause harm for people who have experienced trauma. Here's how. Design research practices can resemble psychotherapy. The thing is, we are not trained psychotherapists and we cannot always know how to respond to people appropriately. Ambiguity in design processes can often feel uncomfortable and people who have experienced trauma can also feel agitated when there is a lack of clarity. A lack of control within design processes can resemble other life experiences where people do not have control. This can be potentially triggering. Power differentials have often led to traumatic experiences for people. Interactions without choice and safety can feel like power over and can potentially cause distress. And last, but by no means least, design can be extractive. Design can function to extract ideas from people to inform new products that are not necessarily in the best interests of the people consulted. This could be a talk in itself and there have been others who have pointed to this in the last day, day and a half. Um, the book Design Justice, I would highly recommend if this is something that you find interesting. So I'm gonna read another quote by Bessel van der Kolk, um, which I feel is re relevant for design. Trauma interferes with the proper functioning of brain areas that manage and interpret experience. A robust sense of self, one that allows a person to state confidently, this is what I think and feel, and this is what is going on with me, depends on a healthy and dynamic interplay among, among these areas. Trauma informs experience and people's ability to talk about experience. Understanding experience is central to human-centred design practice. So I hope that you can see how trauma-informed design research is critical for good human-centred design practice. So let's now have a look at some um, trauma-informed practice, some of the key concepts. What do trauma survivors need? They need to feel safe. They need to feel in control. They need to express their emotions and they need to know what comes next. Trauma-informed practice is strength-based. Within a strength-based approach, every person is seen as a unique individual with their own particular skills, abilities, desires and goals. Instead of focusing on their needs through a deficit mindset, a strength-based approach focuses on strengths and aptitudes helping move people from feeling like a victim to feeling like they are capable people who can take an active role in shaping their lives. Strength-based approaches help people to see that the issue is not that something is wrong with them, but that the issue is something that has happened to them. This, show, this shifts self-perception, helping people see that they can do something for themselves to mitigate their trauma and affect their recovery. Appreciative inquiry is a qualitative research approach which focuses on the root causes of success in order to create more of that. It can help you become more strength-based. There's a book on the resources link that I, I recommend, um, but it's something that you might be um, interested in learning more about. Disclosure. Forcing someone to confront a traumatic past is not a trauma-informed approach. Disclosure cannot be forced. If someone does disclose something to you, it is critical to respond appropriately. Never meet a disclosure with silence. The 2008 report, Adults Surviving Child Abuse, states that 
when a person makes a sorry, when a person makes a disclosure and is met with silence, tells and is not believed, or tells and sees no further supportive action as a result of disclosure, they may never ask for help again. If someone does disclose to you, acknowledge that something bad has happened to them and that there is not something wrong with them. Acknowledge their strength to leave the situation or their resilience for having survived through such an experience. Triggers. People who have experienced trauma can be susceptible to triggers that lead to distress. Triggers can be subtle. Being unaware of a person's triggers can lead to distress. For example, the scent of cologne may be a trigger for someone who has experienced sexual violence. Trauma-informed organisations work with their clients to identify individual triggers and together create strategies to avoid distress. Responses to triggers may include anger, anxiety, feeling overwhelmed, feeling vulnerable, feeling abandoned, feeling out of control, having memories tied to a traumatic event, having muscle tension, amongst other things. Re-traumatisation. One of the key features of trauma-informed care is to avoid traumatising and re-traumatisation. Sometimes organisational processes can be re-traumatising for people when staff do not understand what the client needs or why they are behaving in a certain way. As we have seen, triggers can be very subtle. It is part of trauma-informed care to be aware of triggers and you can discuss with service providers who may have helped you recruit or ask the participants themselves what may be needed to ensure that they feel safe to participate. Duty of care. Workers have a legal and moral responsibility to keep clients safe from harm whilst they are using a service. This responsibility is known as duty of care. This means that you must anticipate risks for your clients and take care to prevent them coming to harm. It is something that we need to be mindful of too when working with people who have experienced trauma. Vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma takes place in the self as a result of empathic engagement with traumatised individuals and hearing reports of their traumatic experiences. Your personal well-being is a priority. At some point, you will probably be negatively impacted by hearing about traumatic experience. It can be heart-wrenching. You may have your own triggers. Know them. Therapists and mental health workers have mechanisms for debriefing. You will need some too. It can be good to work in pairs as well, so not to have to hold what you hear on your own. This book, Trauma Stewardship, an Everyday Guide for Caring for Self While Caring for Others by Connie Burke and Laura Vandenert Lipsky is a really fantastic resource that's, that points to this. Collaboration. Another key principle of trauma-informed care is collaboration. Decision-making happens in collaboration with clients. Within trauma-informed care, any power differentials between service providers and service recipients will be levelled so that clients do not feel powerless. Trauma-informed care recognises that the person that has experienced trauma best understands the challenges within their recovery process. Survivors should not encounter services that mirror the power and control experience in the abusive relationships that caused trauma in the past. Trauma-informed care also sees people as individual and holistic. Service providers should work in collaboration and offer suitable refer referrals in support of clients. 
cultural safety. Our cultural backgrounds influence our worldviews, our values, and our behaviours. Our cultural backgrounds influence how we communicate and how we perceive our experiences. It can also inform how people show distress. Trauma-informed care requires individualised approaches to care and acknowledgement of one's culture. Care provision that facilitates cultural safety is key. All in. Trauma-informed care is the responsibility of everyone in the organisation and it requires cultural change. Organisations have policies and procedures to ensure that they are delivering services that are trauma-informed. Consider making your own to guide research practice at your organisation. Discuss trauma-informed care. Explicate your adaptations to your research process. Talk to your clients and colleagues about it. This stuff's really important. It is important to be very present with people when conducting your, your research. You can check in with them to see how they are feeling and also be alert to signs of distress. Here are some things you can look out for. A person turning pale, someone breathing fast, having panting breaths, dilated pupils, shivers or feeling cold, profuse sweating, difficulty concentrating and remembering, confusion, disorientation, irritability, anxiety and restlessness. You can help someone move through anxiety and come back to the present moment by asking them to name the objects in the room, stating the date and time, invite them to feel their in and out breath, and it can be helpful to have fidget toys on the desk if you're meeting in person, such as plasticine or even pen or paper, because it can provide somatic comfort. It is your job to be aware of nonverbal cues and watch to see if people feel uncomfortable. There are lots of other suggestions you can find online for helping to relieve distress. And as I mentioned before, collaboration is really important and trauma-informed organisations have usually have a list of um, suitable um, referral um, support groups to send people to. So make sure that you have that too so that you can link participants with the appropriate support after if required. Support that, that is appropriate for the person's age and their gender, their sexual orientation, their culture, their language and their developmental level. Okay, so now let's start talking about design practice. Always put the well-being of the person in front of you before your research objectives. That is the immovable rule. Here again, we have the five principles of trauma-informed care. For each principle, I will raise some things to consider within your practice. After this section, I'm gonna talk about um, the design research process and give you some more tips and suggestions and tell you some stories. So let's first start with safety. Safety, remember, is physical and psychological. Getting there. Is the participant clear where to come and how to get there? Does the physical environment feel safe? Is it inviting? Are there any triggers that you need to be aware of? Are we being culturally safe? Are participants greeted warmly? Might the subject matter feel unsafe? Is there enough time to build trust, spaces for pause and silences? And checking, are we ready to move on? Do interpersonal interactions promote a sense of safety? Are there strategies in place if people feel distressed? Are there opportunities to create connection with participants in advance? Do participants feel safe to give honest feedback? Are there others in your workshop that may hinder honest sharing? Have I organised a way for participants to get support after the interview if they need? 
how am I feeling? Do I have safety strategies in place for myself and for my team? I actually have a couple of stories here about safety. So a friend told me about some research she did with um, an Aboriginal person and she was being um, mindful of culture and thinking of the person. So she felt that it might be um, good to meet the person in an outdoor location. So she picked a local park. But as it turned out, this place was not safe as it was an Indigenous burial site. So it can be really useful to check in with your participants about where to meet with them. And also in, in terms of triggers, it's, it's important to be aware that triggers exist when planning your research. For example, rejection could be a trigger and it can be a good idea to consider this when working on your recruitment communications. It can also be helpful to ask whether participants need anything to feel comfortable and safe during the research. I once conducted an interview with a woman who brought in her weighted soft toy which is important for her sense of safety. Let's talk about choice now. Do participants know they can stop or leave mid-interview and still receive their incentive? Do participants know they have a choice whether they answer a question or participate in a task? How might I build choice into my tasks? Is it possible for me to offer options? Have I built in some flexibility to enable participants to potentially reconvene if they are having a bad day? Are my activities flexible? Have I left space for emergent data gathering opportunities in my research plan? Might a diary study be appropriate so participants have the option to participate when they like? Empowerment. Am I suspending judgments and stereotyping and engaging with people as I would a new friend? Am I focused on connection more than my script? Is my language appropriate? Am I being strength-based? Are participants' strengths and resilience being acknowledged? Might it be possible to build capacity and confidence with participants through this work? Is co-design an option for this work? How might we involve, empower and partner with participants? Have I considered power differentials? Who are invited to my participatory design workshops? Is that appropriate? If workers are invited, can they leave their job titles at the door? Are we being are we being extractive in any of our processes? Trustworthiness. Have I explained that this data is anonymised, who it will be shared with and how it will be used? Are participants well informed about what is expected and required? Am I clear on the tasks and the structure of activities? Have I communicated this well? Have I been transparent about this work? Am I able to work at the speed of trust? Are all interactions kind and respectful? Am I making judgments or holding assumptions? Am I listening with my heart, mind, gut and senses? Do my actions say power over or power with? Might I work with some allies to create more trust? The final principle is collaboration. Might I work with others, service providers, community members, advocates, elders, to support recruitment and this work? How am I reimbursing participants? Is that meaningful? Would that be valued by them? You need to pay your recipients, sorry, your participants. Who may I work with to ensure my research processes are culturally safe? Sharing stories of lived experience is important and also healing. Might there be opportunity and interest in this? Might I engage this person to support data generation within the research program, building their capability? Might it be possible to work with participants over time during different phases of the, of the design process? 
how might I close the loop with this person after the research? All right. Here we have um, the design research process. There is a little bit of repetition here and I'm trying to, I'll try and weave some stories in as well, a bit more. So we've got, um, I've, I've got the different sections being plan, recruit, physical space, conducting the research and after. So let's have a look at plan, planning first. What are my assumptions, um, judgments about this person and their life situation? We really need to look beyond our privilege. Um, Indy mentioned this yesterday. I, I recommend to write them out, ex explicate them so you can see them. And Belle and Olivia said yesterday too, working in teams can help you see through your biases. Bring broader team and the client on the journey. Trauma-informed education, especially for service providers in this space, is important. Explicate how you are making your work trauma-informed. Let's build buzz and, and conversation around this. Consider developing a pre-work or sensitization activity. This enables participants to reflect in advance and if done online, it can help build comfort, build their comfort using technology, creating more safety. We recently did that in a, um, an online co-design, some online co-design workshops with um, people with lived experience of mental health. So we created a, a sensitization activity, getting them to reflect through different activities on the subject matter of the workshops. And we also offered drop-in times and said, if you haven't reused Mural, if you are having any problems with Mural, if you wanted some help, um, here are some times that you can um, tune in on Zoom and, and meet us. And we actually had quite a few um, people drop in to say hello. So that was a really great way, not only to build safety, but also to create connection. Make sure you do your background work. Don't come in cold. To support your, to support your understanding, learn about the context in advance. Build familiarity. Um, have you thought, what we could do as well is create a trauma-informed charter. So as I mentioned, trauma-informed organisations have policies and procedures set up to support their staff. Consider creating a trauma-informed charter which outlines the way your team works to make your research more trauma-informed. This could be on a project basis or it could be as a practice for your, for your team. But have a think about doing that. Um, it's important as well to identify safe and appropriate locations. So it's important to um, gather your advocates, communities and SMEs together and make sure you've got some who know the, um, the cohort and the space. They can help you find locations. So I did some workshops in regional New South Wales. Um, it was quite, it was a few years ago and it was one of my first um, projects working with Indigenous communities. So I was a bit green, but um, I didn't realise that the community was factioned. And um, so we put on some workshops and we actually did them at the Y, the YMCA, which was a, um, a, a place that a lot of members of the community frequented. And a lot of people, it was the, the work was sponsored by Family and Community Services, but it wouldn't be appropriate to invite participants to come to a Family and Community Services office because they often, they have had quite a lot of bad experiences with child protection and so forth and Family and Community Services. So we ran the workshops at the Y. But some, not that many participants showed up and didn't really realise this, but they wanted to know in, in order for it to be safe for them to, to come, they, have, they had to know who was coming. So if so-and-so was there, so-and-so wouldn't come. So I had no idea about this at the time, but it really reinforces the, the need and importance to work with communities um, when planning your research. 
Um, elders can be also really helpful. Community influencers, if you can work with community influencers. Um, with that same program, we um, we um, did some. We there was a woman involved who ran yarning circles with young women, and she um, she was great to have on board because she had influence in community and was able to get people to to talk to us. Okay, serendipity. So this is kind of related to that. Um, there, there may well be um, opportunities to engage with community. At this, during the same project, during the first workshop, I did have opportunity um, emerge, but my flights were booked, so um, there was no there was no space in the time in the schedule to to leverage opportunities that emerged. So I just think it's important to create some spaciousness in your schedule because you never know what's going to emerge. So. Partner with communities um, also can really help you reach those hard to hear voices. So in that same project, we um, we interviewed a man that worked um, in a men, he not worked, but he ran men's circles with men who'd been in incarceration. And he agreed to um, have a yarning circle with those men. So there was such richness that came from the, um, the community engagement. We actually partnered with an Indigenous NGO. It was very wise of Family and Community Services to set up that relationship because they really helped steward. And it was actually, um, I trained quite a lot of the NGO staff to actually conduct the research. I was there more in a mentoring capacity. That community relationships are, are really great and useful. Okay, let's talk about recruitment. You cannot rely on your usual recruitment contacts. Work with the allies and partners you identified in your plan stage that we just that you just did. Um, so recruit via channels of safety. Ask participants what may be needed to create ease when participating. Also, if people are not selected, make sure it's not in an abandonment process. So Sarah Favala is um, a really great social designer and she she talks, she does quite a lot of talks online. She shares the recruitment process she used, including the recruitment communications used in, at the Restorative Design Conference, and there's a link in the page. So I highly recommend that you watch that video. It's really great. When recruiting, clearly outline what is expected of participants. Ensure you provide clarity and transparency about the research and the project. Might you offer choice in how to engage? Might you give them the option of working, well, now we're mainly online, but if there's choice, how might you build in choice? Mental health challenges are prevalent amongst people who have experienced trauma, as we've discussed. So it's good to allow for some flexibility in the schedule should the person be having a bad day. This enables choice and safety. It might be good as well to involve a safe person like a family member or worker to create greater safety. Physical space, if you get to do um, in-person work. Um, ensure the space feels inviting and comfortable. Ensure the door is visible. Ensure the place is appropriate and not institutional. Um, allow people to sit where they want. I mentioned before fidget toys. If you are, if you are working online, you can ask a participant to bring along an object because that can really help to have something to hold. Provide water and model drinking it. Hospitality is important. A cup of tea goes a long way. Um, set longer durations of your interviews. Be patient with participants. It can be hard talking about certain topics. Go at their pace. Include breaks. 
Shell hospitality, as I mentioned, a cup of tea <laughs> is, is a really beautiful offering, really warm, hospitable thing to do. Be strength-based. So I highly recommend you look up appreciative inquiry. Ask for permission to move to next topics. Be aware of nonverbal cues. Tell people that it's okay to stop and that they can say that. It's okay for them to leave and they'll still get their, um, their payment. Make sure that you get your language checked. Make sure it's appropriate. I often get scripts um, checked by um, subject matter experts where relevant. Um, non-linearity. So um, ensure there's flexibility with your activities and enable non-linear descriptions of experience. So people who have experienced trauma, it can be challenging for them to recall traumatic events in sequence. Um, Bessel van der Kolk talks about this quite a lot in his book. I think that's really interesting, the way that the brain works and the ability to remember and how it, it's often fragmented. Memories of traumatic experiences are quite fragmented. So if using journey maps, for example, allow flexibility when gathering data. So I did some work with um, people who had experienced heart attacks. And what we did is we had circles for the different phases of their journey and just allowed the people to share in whatever way that worked for them. We didn't force them down a linear and what happened then and what happened then and what happened then. We didn't do that. We had the phases and we just popped them down and kind of posted noted around those phases and, and worked in a in a non-kind of um, linear way. Um, validate, repeat what you hear. Um, that says that the person has been heard and understood. Building choice and flexibility where you can. Never force sharing. It's difficult for people to explain with words what and how they feel. I use a lot of visuals and, and art can also be a, a valuable research aid. Um, Belle and Olivia shared some really beautiful imagery that they have been using in their health project yesterday. I use a lot of photo cards when interviewing people because they help to prompt responses and they can really help people. It makes it more accessible and supports dialogue. All right, let's have a look at after. Ensure you have some follow-up counselling services for your participants and ensure they're, they're appropriate. I mentioned that before. Ensure you've got follow-up counselling services arranged for your team as well in case. Again, I'll say it again, payment. We really need to make sure that we pay people meaningfully and fairly. A movie ticket does not cut it. Closing the loop, might you be able to go back to participants with a version of the report? Team debriefs and reflective journaling after interviews can help you to integrate what you have heard. I worked in child protection on a lengthy contract a few years back and I did get rattled. It was really heartbreaking hearing firsthand how broken the system is. The book Trauma, sorry, Trauma Stewardship talks about a mental health worker who on holidays, instead of enjoying the view on a cliffside vantage point, she found herself wondering how many people had attempted suicide there. She thought her job was not affecting her. It can sneak up on you. Please, please, um, sorry, please ensure that there is sufficient time for your team, for yourself, and for, for everyone for their self-care. Um, I just, I'm just not sure about my time. Let me just think what time I started. I forgot to press um, my timer on my watch. I just quickly um, share a little story about a project I worked for an NGO. So it was lived experience, um, working with people with lived experience of mental health. And what we did is we got, it was, um, we got a list of people 
and we sent out a survey and we, we did a big call out, would you like to be involved in this, um, in this research program? It's online. People um, wrote back and said yes and we went through the list and so forth. We then called the participants that um, we felt from the demographic information that we got from them that we thought we'd get diversity, but we, we couldn't have that many. We had to have quite a, a low number. We then called the people back. And we talked to them. We started, we built connection. Um, we explained what it was about. We explained um, what was required of them. Um, and that also allowed us to get more diversity in our cohort. Um, so the, the people were sent three tasks once a week over a three-week period. This was before we got into mural online days. Um, and we sent them PDFs and used Google Forms and email to get responses back. They could do this when they liked. So they had freedom and choice to do it when it worked for them. Um, and we also provided times that they could call us if they had any questions as well. So um, that would enable clarity and safety and also support connection. And then at the end, we had some um, interviews with them. So it was a, it was a cultural probe diary study um, sort of um, program of work, but it was really effective. Um, just a few resources, as I mentioned, they're all on that link that you can find there. I highly re recommend that talk, um, Rachel Dietkes and Sarah Favela, and these books, My Grandmother's Hands, Design Justice, a book about appreciative inquiry, The Body Keeps the Score, Trauma Stewardship, and Kellyanne's book, Beyond Sticky Notes, which is fantastic if you haven't read it. I highly recommend that. There's a lot of stuff in there that um, supports trauma-informed um, ways of working. So... I hope I've left you today thinking that trauma-informed design research is important. I really hope that you discuss it with your colleagues, your stakeholders and your clients. Let's build awareness about being trauma-informed in our practice. Let's start a movement. So thank you all. I'm just putting that out there that I'm looking for some work at the moment. Um, but if you'd like to get in touch, please do. I find these, um, these a bit interesting doing these online because you don't really get to chat to anyone after. So please feel free to drop me a line if anything you know, stood out for you or if you just want to say hi. There's my contact details. So that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jax. That was wonderful. A lot of, a lot of really good detail in there, yeah. But it's an important topic and it's, it's one that I don't think we can cover enough um, or often enough. Um, that was great. Thank you very much. Thanks.